Welcome back to another EXP podcast. We have a, a very special episode this week. Uh, we are sponsored by SideFX and we're bringing you a uh, Houdini-focused podcast and we're going to be giving an introduction to Houdini. We have two fantastic artists who work in Houdini here with us today, Ewan and Alex. I can get to introduce them to us. Ewan, do you want to start us off? Yeah, for sure. My name's uh, my name's Ewan. I'm a freelance effects artist here in Northern California, just north of San Francisco, and I've been at it for about uh, 20 years. It's a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and Alex, what about you? Uh, yeah, uh, my name's Alex. I, uh, I've been making games for around 10 years. I kind of started off on the environment side of things and have slowly kind of broadened out to all things you know, like tech art, lighting, VFX, um, while still kind of, you know, picking up more environment stuff. Uh, I'm based up in Seattle right now. So um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners have heard of what Houdini is, um, but perhaps many of them haven't kind of delved in and, and had a go. Um, so it'd be good to kind of hear in your guys' words, what, what kind of is Houdini? What is it that it, it does? And what's kind of the thing that makes it different from, you know, a traditional package, like a uh, you know, modeling package or, or VFX package or whatever it is that... You want to run with that, Alex, or you want me to? Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'll, I'll come in after. Okay, cool. Um, and anything I forget, you can <laughs> add to. Um, yeah, uh, Houdini is basically just a 3D application, not unlike Maya or Max. Uh, but the big differentiator is uh, it, it takes an, a systemic or procedural approach to creating assets or content. Uh, you're basically stacking functions, um, and they're all non-destructive. So it gives you a lot of power to be able to change things uh, along the way um, or anywhere in the pipeline. And it's, it's very, very robust in that way. Uh, unlike if you were to try to do uh, create an effect setup in you know, Maya or Max or something like that, uh, just, it wouldn't be possible to um, apply it in the way that uh, Houdini setups can be applied. Um, but it's also a strong modeling package. Uh, it's got a nice renderer in it. Um, but primarily, it's a very, very, very strong effects package. So if you're doing rigid body sims or fluid simulations for pyro or liquids, flip fluids for liquids, um, anything like that, it's an extremely capable effects package that can generate some really stunning imagery. Um, and now that that's sort of uh, being integrated with Unreal over the past few years, um, you know, along along the lines of convergence with film and games or film in real time, uh, it's it's um, a, a really neat package that allows you amazing effects. And now that we can integrate it with Unreal or Unity, whatever game engine you're using, uh, it's starting to give effects artists and games a lot of a lot of power. Yeah, I think I think the only thing I would I would kind of add to that is just the the level of you know uh, exposed or exposure like everything that you're doing in the packages. There is uh, there's an incredible amount of access to just data. It was it was honestly what broke my brain when I was like not in a bad way, but in like an excited way of like how I think about 3D. Like it, you know, I I'd started off modeling. Um, you know, in Maya and in Gmax way, way back in the day and like, oh, okay, this is a bird, this is an edge, this is a face. And you go into Houdini and all of that is exposed, but then it's, it's editable and you can kind of feed that data into itself. You can access it, you know, uh, like was mentioned off in, in, in different proprietary, you know, pieces of tech like in Houdini, uh, in Houdini engine, but it's, uh, it's, it's very, very exposed where like the, the number of edges around this thing could be the same number that you put into a color or the number of cubes you duplicate or something like that. Um, it allows for an incredible amount of interconnectivity. Do you find that because of how raw it is, uh, that's a lot more difficult to get into uh, in terms of like, say, if I want to create uh, some quick rocks that get uh, procedurally made, procedurally uh, low polyed, baked, blah, blah, blah. Do you find that because it's so incredibly dense, I guess as how I describe it, um, that it just requires a completely different way of thinking. I would I would agree with that. I think one thing is that a lot of people, including myself, sort of started off in a more traditional three D application, and so when I opened up Houdini, it just so different. It was kind of disorienting at first, um, and that was a while back too. So the amount of learning content wasn't as rich as it is now. Um, but yeah, I think it's really the difference in the way you approach things in Houdini compared to other apps that people may be familiar with that can be a real shock at first. But I think one advantage that folks getting into it now have is that there is a ton of great training content and tutorials out there to learn from. 
Um, same with Unreal. So it's, you know, if I find myself trying to, you know, learn something new or do something new, um, I, I typically don't have a very difficult time finding resources to help me figure out how to do that the right way. What do you think, Alex? Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely a different change of mindset. And I, I actually, I, I learned Houdini a pretty interesting way where, you know, there, there are a lot of shelf tools. There's a lot of built-in, you know, okay, I want to make a pyro sim. I want to make a cube. I want to bevel that edge. There's a lot of fantastic built-in functionality there. But when I started, I actually was working with a bunch of senior effects artists and uh, like Houdini scene riggers uh, over at Oculus. And they, they kind of sat me down on the opposite end of the spectrum and said, okay, you're going to learn like, here is a group. This is like the basic Houdini idea of collecting data and putting it together. And they had me start more from the ground up. And I think while it is like a bit of an unintuitive like learning step to kind of get into those like fundamentals that then unlocked uh, a ton more for like how i perceive the program because then it was okay this is things that i can do with groups oh groups are kind of like selection sets okay cool and it it from there it was a very easy and natural growth to be oh okay well today i want to make uh you know like you said like a rock well uh, I'm I'm really just manipulating this basic information the same way that I was taught at the start, um, and I I do think you know like you said there's there's a worthy call out of what is different there um, between like like using the tools built in with a package versus in Houdini there really is a benefit to learning how Houdini likes to think about data, um, and you can you can you can look into anything you can look at their fancy cloud rendering node and you can actually open it up and see all the little nodes inside and realize oh okay this actually isn't that crazy what they're doing right um it's it's fantastic yeah one thing i found too was uh as i got more into it when i first started i thought wow Houdini's hard and max and i are really easy and now as the you know the, the the breadth of what we're using it for expands and expands now it seems like things that i can do in houdini fairly easily seem really really hard in max or maya it's kind of a funny flip i mean those are both great <laughs> applications but uh, I'm not dogging about or anything, but it's just funny the way that kind of flipped on me after using it for a little while. Yeah, I did have a quick question for both of you, actually. Um, like, do you think there's a reason why people learn Maya or Max first, as opposed to just jumping straight to Houdini when they start out in the industry? I think more and more are, to be honest. I think Houdini's kind of made its... Uh, way into the mainstream over the last several years. I'm not sure they use it for modeling, um, but for effects, it's, I mean, in my mind, it seems like kind of the go-to tool at this point. Um, as far as, uh, you know, what do people start with? A lot of people start with modeling. I mean, I started with just as a prop artist initially, and and typically the industry is using Max for that, or at that time it was using Max for that, for Maya. Um, and so it may be toward what you're exposed to, you know, where you went to school, the company you started with, uh, or however you get started. Um, I just, Houdini was not even on my radar when I got started, so. Yeah, it was very much the same for me. Like, I I didn't start with it because that wasn't what the school that I went to taught with. Um, I do think there is, when you're when you're learning about 3D, like, you look at, like, an, you know, uh, an, let's say an expert, like, or an advanced veteran of, of 3D software, there's a ton of different options, right? You want to do trees? Go, go check out SpeedTree. You want to go procedural effects, do this thing, want to check out like sculpting their ZBrush. There's something to be said of starting in a place where you can kind of learn how to do everything a little bit. And then from there learning where your preferences or where your pipelines preferences take you to different specialty tools. But that is becoming a more and more leveling field. You can, you can model in ZBrush. You can, uh, you can go in and unwrap in, uh, in Houdini now. Like there's, there's a slow like raising that bar of minimum uh, like need of accessibility to kind of like jump into a platform. But definitely when I started out, yeah, it was much more like I, I checked out Maya because I think that was what the school had a license for. And that meant there was one program where I could learn a little bit about animation and modeling and rendering. And but now you describe a lot of those things and there's there's so many programs that are, are actually pretty good at those. Right. Um I guess in a in a base understanding way of 3D modeling, uh, a classic DCC like Max Maya Blender kind of gives you a a very low level overview, right? Which anyone can jump in and be like, "Oh, this is a cube, and if I press this, it just extrudes, and I can select how far I want to extrude it." Right? I think maybe that's the the advantage of starting with those things. Whereas in Houdini, you're gonna you're gonna have a much more um, 
deeper experience with something uh, where you have to make, uh, you know, you have to think about all these things you want to do ahead of time, of yeah. course. So I think maybe that that's one of the the main differences as to why I, I always described it to people. You guys have used Houdini way more than me, but I always described Houdini to people that were wanting to learn as though as like if you're making a table, you're going to spend more time preparing the logic to build that table, <laughs> and then you can make more versions. Whereas in Maya, I can make a table in five minutes and I'm good. But in Houdini, it takes twenty to thirty minutes because I'm just figuring out how the fuck to put this thing together in nodes. <laughs> But then at the but end, you've got infinite variations. Table at runtime. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. <laughs> one, uh, one way I've always, uh, I guess, described Houdini to my peers as we've used it at work is that it's a little bit more of a programming kind of way of thinking. Uh, would you guys like agree with that or, or not? Absolutely. I mean, go ahead, Alex. You want, you, you want to take it? Um, I mean, I think, uh, I think there's definitely like a, a more technically minded way of going about things, but, um, as someone that, you know, like I'm, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call myself a programmer or anything like that, but I, I learned, I learned like the, the UDK material editor while I was still in school. Um, and I, I definitely started being artistic with technical tools and that's been my whole career. Like I still... You know, I, I I can read HLSL. I can do I can do some rendering stuff. I stay up on technology, but I am not a programmer. I am an artist. Like that is that is primarily how I think. And I there is a pretty big group of people like that. That for me, going into Houdini, while there was some nuance to uh, like how I thought about like you know like tiny little things like syntax or something like that. Generally speaking, it wasn't any more or less artistic than like using a shader editor or like Substance or something. That's a really good point. I think maybe one way to describe it, it's less programming and perhaps more scripting or expressions and things like that. Um, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I mean, you look at uh, even some of like the more like very, very low level, like, you know, almost like for, for kids like Scratch or something that's meant to teach like simple introductory logic, right? Uh, and, and maybe logic is that right word? Yeah, um, I'd say that logic is definitely how I describe it. Actually, um, like it's a it's a it's a planned way of content creation, but it's also like, I mean, so I've I've stayed away from pre-rendered three D almost almost my entire career, uh, and that's because I'm the the quality that many tech artists have, where I'm I'm super lazy. I don't want to do things and then wait. <laughs> like I don't want to I don't want to like <laughs> uh, do something fifty times if I can write a script to try and do it once. And that has led to a kind of like a, an iteration pattern for me where I work in Unreal, even if I'm doing art that is incredibly high end, because I like the ability to click a button and change a light and see it instantly. And that, that iteration is part of what made me like successful as an artist. And I get a lot of that out of these tool sets where if I made, if I made a house in Moto or Maya or Blender or something like that, it would take a pretty significant chunk of time to see 20 different versions of that house. Um, yeah. And there, well, like you said, there is time to set that up. Um, if you can, if you can like make shortcuts or, or find ways to iterate, it can be, it can be so useful. Um, and that, you know, I think that's the power of like substance designer. It's the same power as like, like Houdini or, uh, sorry, the, you know, like the unreal material editor or any material editor, right? Like, um, it's like change a button, see the result, iterate on it quickly. It's kind of the advantages of a node-based system, right? Yeah, it's um and it's it's a funny thing. So I did, you know, I went to school uh back in like I think graduated 2012 and I I had a lot of good technical skill sets, but I didn't practice a lot about um like the the basic art fundamentals that I learned like my, my freshman year. I didn't really practice much. And the thing that got me to be a better artist was sitting down and being like, "Okay, well I'm going to start trying to paint." And I would do these two to three four little thumbnail sketches over and over again because iterating on like a like a five minute thumbnail sketch is way faster than building an entire 3d environment that takes you know like three months of your time or something like it's it's hard to undersell the value of of iterative practice um, but all these technical tools it's awesome for like it's it's such a fantastic enabling tool for sure and Annette, i found myself at you know on the effects side of things doing I'm often imbuing data in existing models. So let's say there's a you know a character and he's going to do you know dissolve or something. I'll bring that model into Houdini and I'll you know create a setup for that guy. 
and it will imbue that data just the way I want it to. Now, if the character artist changes that model, and I had done that in Max or I had done that in Maya, it basically would mean a redo of that setup. Um, but in Houdini, especially if you approach it with that logic in mind, you can create a setup that if they change the character, it doesn't matter. If they change the asset, it doesn't matter. Just bring it in and, and reprocess it. And, and that's a huge advantage because it allows you to absorb those kinds of, even late in the project changes, uh, much more gracefully than you would if all of a sudden it was just like hours and hours and hours of labor to get that stuff updated. Um, also on the effects side, the the and I I don't know if you guys are all specifically effects artists, but um, in terms of doing sims and stuff, in terms of doing you know kicking out rigid body sims and uh, pyro and you know even content for for real time effects sprites and you know texture sheets and things like that, it's really really tough to beat. I think back in the day, Doom effects. And uh, real flow, I guess, would, would give it a run for its money, um, but it's it's just gotten so far ahead that it's it's really hard to compete with on the effects side. Yeah, and it also there are, and I, I know I'm admittedly not as well versed on the effects tool sets that like Blender or Maya bring to the table, but um, you know Houdini is like almost like encouraging you to to do those iterations, right? Like they've got built-in take systems so that like you could easily export 10 different versions of a thing and look at it and be like, oh, okay, cool. Like, this is the one I want. This is the one I want to keep. Um, effects so often is like, the re like great effects sometimes. It's a, you know, industry secret. It was a result of a happy accident. Mm -hmm. And if you ever want to like <laughs> position yourself for a happy accident, just kick off a wedge. Essentially, it'll just change a random seed or whatever random seeds you want and rerun it over and over again. So you get up the next morning you'll have 10 different variants of that explosion and you can say, oh, I want that one. So it's kind of a cool way to uh, bias your, your chances of getting a happy accident. So really what we're getting at is Houdini does a bunch of stuff. Yeah, <laughs> all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so it, it, it sounds like Houdini kind of can do everything um, or at least a little, little bit of everything, um, which I guess has a lot of, a lot of power in itself. Um, and in some aspects, perhaps it might, you know, it might be way better in some things than other things in some other use cases, like Cam was saying earlier. You know, if you need to make one single table, perhaps it's not, yeah. not mm -hmm. the thing for you. But if you need to make, you know, twenty different tables throughout a game that all share similar properties, then you're going to be able to do that way faster. Right. If you want a table, Houdini's the way to go. If you want to model a one-off prop or sculpting, for that matter. Um, you know, that's definitely going to be a job for ZBrush or Max or Maya for just doing hard, hard surface props. Yeah. And I, the, I think something that I maybe would have picked up on by kind of the examples that we're giving, but like, while there is content creation in Houdini, like one of the, one of the more powerful things that it does is it, it fits so nicely into, into other pipe pipelines and, you know, through its Python access, through some of its internal scripting through Houdini engine. Um, which is like a essentially like a batch version of Houdini that can run when called on by something else like by Maya or by Unreal or Unity or something. It can solve problems. It can like you can you can feed it a bunch of assets and be like, you know what, I need these all reduced in in polys or tries or whatever, right? I need these all auto unwrapped. I need these all vert colored. And it can it can take in an input, solve the problem, and then send an output. And I think that's one of the biggest use cases in in terms of um, games that, that you're starting to see it just explode. Um, I'd agree. Absolutely. Well, um, something we use, uh, use it here, um, for, uh, CIG is, uh, like our asteroids, for example, we've got, uh, we just feed it some basic data, uh, sometimes no data at all. We just let Houdini figure it all out, but it will make you the high poly, the low poly. It will look great. It will, um, bake it. It will make all the blend maps we need for the engine. It will make all the albedo maps, everything just, an easy process and it makes it quite easy for maybe a designer that wants to create a very specific asteroid for a mission or something to just open up max just get a quick like block out or not even max just export an fbx from the engine and just feed it to houdini and it brings spits out something that the artist checks and it's like yeah it looks good you know it's really powerful for that kind of stuff i really love it for that did you set that up or do you guys have a tech artist or something that does that for you? Uh, we have a tech artist that sets it up, but uh, we're also involved a little bit in sort of the prototyping and R&D of how we want it to work, right? So I think it's a, it's a combination of both. It'd be great to hear a little bit more about how you both you guys kind of use Houdini in your day-to-day your -day or like what 
what are kind of the key features that you're leveraging in, in the stuff that you do? Um, I'm primarily, uh, I'm not like creating characters and things like that. What I'm doing is I'm taking assets typically that are created by, you know, a specialist or a character artist or a prop artist, environment artist. And I'm typically either animating them for effects, um, you know, whether it's with a sim or whatever uh, in Houdini, or I'm imbuing those assets with data that I'm going to use later, for example, with an Unreal material or something like that. Like I can cook vert colors or I can, um, you know, you can bake out uh, particle impact data using CSVs or there's a lot of different ways that you can get that data out. But basically I'm using it to, number one, create effects content, whether that's the explosion or the rigid body sim, soft body sim, whatever. And uh, typically starting by processing assets in Houdini in a way to, you know, uh, I guess apply the threshold mask, for example, or, um, you, you know, whatever, uh, whatever data I, I'm going to use later on in Unreal, whether it's for effects or materials to pull off that effect that I'm trying to do. So primarily, I guess the short answer would be creating effects content and processing existing content for use in effects sequences. Yeah, my my experience, I, I started using Houdini at Oculus and we were uh, on the effects side of things, we definitely did almost like the exact same kind of thing where it was like, you know, we needed a crazy 3D print grid mesh, so we would vertex color and pivot paint it in Houdini. Um, we'd also do like, you know, we at one point needed to like make the scene look like it voxelized and dissolved. So like we, we calculated all of the voxel versions of meshes in Houdini, but we also were using it on the environment side for, for optimization techniques. Um, so one of the projects the team that I was on worked on before before I got there actually was, um, uh, I believe it was called Farlanders, but they uh, they ended had a, they ended up like hand placing way too many rocks for VR, and so draw calls became an issue. If you just match or uh, batch merge everything together, too many draw calls, um, and a bunch of or sorry, not too many draw calls, too many overlapping triangles that were all like you know sunken through the terrain, and so we used Houdini to go in and just like detect what was under the terrain and if it was just wipe it away. Um, these days I'm definitely much more on the environment side of things. So I've been looking a lot closer into uh, the landscape pipeline, into the PDG pipeline, figuring out how to populate assets uh, into the world as well as like very like focused tools, I guess is probably the right word. So, um, you know, we need to drape a bunch of cables over an environment. We need to, automatically build a bridge we need to generate a bunch of base presets for houses um it, it's it's been a it's been a huge accelerator for that stuff for sure uh i'm curious uh, at what point did you guys sort of make the decision to check out houdini or like what drove you guys to do it was there something maybe you needed at work or did you just check out the program at, at home and decided to bring it into work for me, it was totally the the guys that I was working with are like, you need to you need to look at this stuff. And I had I had heard of it a little bit. Like there was, I think the first time I ever heard of the word Houdini relative to VFX was, you know, I think reading the old Valve white paper about how they generated flow maps for the Left 4 Dead levels. Yeah, yeah. And I like I was like that that word stuck with me because I I you know I love weird tech art tricks, and um they were but I had heard the same thing that it was you know hard to get into and they were they were very convincing but they're also you know all, the, all those guys had worked at ILM and stuff like that so you know pay attention and <laughs> learn from them as much as I could and it I mean it's it's it only kind of took off from there yeah I was uh, yeah it was about like 2011 and they had uh, released the apprentice version um it was pretty it, I think that was a really smart move because it open the door to kind of crack it open and start noodling around. Back in the day, it was like there was one dude, this Peter Quint guy, who yes. had a massive catalog of tutorials. I think everybody like made Lego, you know, block stuff and, and sticky note animation and stuff. And it really was actually cool, though, because it really sort of turned you on to the whole procedural approach. Um, you know, this, they weren't really setups you'd use for anything, but they were, oh, okay, I get this. This would be really hard in another application, but it's really easy here. The, the Peter Quint uh, tutorials, those were what I started with. So those were like the very first, um, like this, you know, it's like a 10 minute video about like, here's how we group points together. Um, and I, I can't recommend them enough. And they're really not the most exciting thing, but like that foundation just 
blew my mind of like oh you know really there's just attributes on vertices and points and you know how we interpret them like that was when i went from just thinking about verts edges and faces to like you know i could list an array of tree types and link that to a point and then sample from that array randomly and use that to you know drive the color of another piece of information then turn that into a volume turn it back into geometry like it it broke my brain i loved it it was <laughs> it was so cool like that was a but his his tutorials like i cannot recommend them enough yeah um, he's like an old Brit and he's got like this super soothing persona too so he makes it like kind of seem you know almost easy and, and very approachable it's pretty cool he's a good dude there's a lot of good instructors out there i mean a lot of you get a lot of good content um mm -hmm. steven being an, an ilm dude he's putting out some great content does a fantastic job of, of explaining exactly what's going on it's very approachable pretty quick too they're not like 20 hour investments or anything but very 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 packed with really 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 strong production techniques yeah, yeah i like found that uh, some time ago when i was trying to learn houdini back in i don't know 20 2016 or something like that just for some random things i was trying um there was some, some good stuff out there but you know now like five years later there's almost anything you can find online it's an industry yeah it's exactly i get I guess a good question would be to both of you is like, if someone's just started to learn Houdini, what would be the first thing they should kind of look at? Mm. Like if you had to pick one topic for that person to to focus on and, and get like an understanding of that subject. Uh, back in the day, I had they, they had like an intro kind of at a learning path, I guess it was. Um, and again, it wasn't super interesting stuff. Uh, you know, it wasn't, you know, starting out with explosions, but it really gave you a pretty good intro to the procedural approach. Um, Peter Quinn, again, um, you know, which, who we mentioned before, he he does a great job of touching on that very kind of helping you get your brain around that procedural approach first. And then you can kind of apply it to your specialty, whether it's effects or procedural content or content creation or whatever. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think just, you know, starting at starting with those basics and getting your head around. Um, that that procedural approach. I know it's really tempting to go and click the explosion shelf tools and stuff. <laughs> You'll get cool pictures, but Michael, it, it may take going a to Michael time. Bay. Yeah, <laughs> full on Michael Bay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I would I would second the Peter Quint videos. I I think that like uh, I think it's also worth like picking like you know the, the Houdini really is one of those programs where if you if you set yourself a goal. There's usually 50 different ways to get there. And, and these days, there's a lot of information. Like the way I tend to learn more about Houdini these days is, you know, there's something I want to try to do. Like I've never made a procedural cliff before. There's a ton of resources. So once you've gotten that basic foundation of, you know, like you know, Peter Quinn talking about like how we organize data and you know, this is how Houdini does its proceduralism. Um, it's really just tracking down ways to learn or even try to try to like figure out things on your own um with with like the information that's there right like it's not it's not a crazy jump to think i've got a mesh i want to add noise to make it look more like a rock and those are two noise or those are two nodes that are pretty much there and ready to go that you can start to iterate on um i also would call out the um the takeru like cg wiki site as just a ton of really really good examples where um there's there's like in-depth breakdowns of like the like really just like tiny little things like how do I want to apply like a ramp of colors to a mesh and you can actually like you download the file explore it yourself um, as well as like see like a, a text breakdown of why why things are done. Yeah, I found the Houdini community was pretty cool too. Like you can get on odd or odd odd force or whatever and and um, you know I even on Vimeo like if I do stuff and I'm just doing it for fun all. I, I'll often just put the hip up there so people can grab it and invite people to critique it if they want. But more to the point, you know, I, I kind of learned that from a lot of other people that were doing that. And I thought that was really gracious and generous. And it was cool because it allowed you to kind of reverse engineer what they were doing and learn a lot from it that way. Community is really helpful. The Houdini community I found to be really welcoming. It seems like a good way to kind of, you know, maybe if someone's a bit on the fence or, or worried about what to do is is to see if there's a way that they could Kind of find something in the existing project or a project that they're, they're wanting to to get into that that perhaps Houdini would do better. Um, something like adding vines or like draping tables or something sounds a lot easier to do or 
perhaps can be done a lot uh, cleaner through something like Houdini rather than trying to you know, hand place all those lines or something in Unreal or um, or even in, in your modeling program. Um, yeah, I think once you get once you learn your way around stuff like that is um, you know measured in minutes and not in hours. That's pretty very very powerful when it comes to that stuff. I mean that's kind of its core competency is you know simulations dynamics. Um, so that kind of stuff it's very 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 powerful. Yeah, you, especially. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say. Would you agree? Uh, yeah, I would. I would say like the the like for me the two standout things are definitely like the simulation VFX side and then also the just like the data manipulation I guess is what I would say of like you know I can I can pick and choose how I want to move like cubes around or how I want to duplicate things um I think these days there's there's a lot of exposure especially like if you're like a game artist and you've worked in Unreal and you've like you know painted a bunch of foliage around a map or something like that the yeah like the the branch to go from that into well how could something do this for me um like picking picking a thing you do uh and like i i model a bunch of hard surface stuff or you know i i unwrap a bunch of stuff or i have to make a bunch of low polys or i have to do a bunch of stuff with uh photo scan work any any one of those there's there's probably a relatively entry level gateway tutorial into more of what the capabilities are like uh like terrain is one of the areas that i've spent a ton of time on recently and you know i've even i've like i've written a couple of like tutorials and, and presentations for side effects of like here is you know here is like if you're you're coming from world machine you you know what terrain is in unreal this is like the jumping off point how to how to go from there so another thing i want to touch on a little bit um we sort of mentioned parts of it there but um so some of our listeners might be familiar with some procedural workflows. They may have used um, something like designer or um, you know something similar where where they're kind of yeah using something non destructively. But um, it'd be good to kind of get into how that kind of works with Houdini and how how someone could perhaps um, integrate that in their current kind of workflow. Um, I think there's an example of like you know making a rock earlier and taking the shape and applying the noise, doing these kind of things that you might do. It might, you know, it might take you, I don't know, hours, days maybe to get a set of rocks done if you were, you know, sculpting it by hand in, in ZBrush or whatever. But then perhaps you take this into Houdini and you can kind of set up some, some rules, set up some parameters, whatever, and, and, and output yourself at least something that's a base, if not good enough to be the final um, product. But uh, how, how kind of... What are some perhaps other examples of kind of the power of that procedural workflows that um, Houdini can use, or or you can take integrate into something like Unreal from Houdini Engine? The uh, the the Houdini Engine workflow is is like in a, in a, in its most basic form is actually pretty straightforward. Is you have inputs, you get outputs. Um, the inputs happen in the the detail window window of Unreal. So you place what's called an HDA, which is you know Houdini digital asset. Um, you're going to import it into your content browser. It's a type of asset that's saved out from Houdini that contains a chunk of operations, and it also contains expected inputs and outputs. Those same inputs are then exposed in Unreal. So an input could be a mesh, it could be a number, it could be a spline or a landscape. Um, and you pretty much hit go, hit the cook button, and Houdini is going to send all of that data off to Houdini Engine, which is kind of running in a like a behind-the-scenes version of, of Houdini. It'll do those operations and then automatically bring that right back into Unreal. Um, so like a, a very simple example would be I've got a spline that I've made in Unreal. Um, I've you know positioned these points. Maybe I want to put a fence along a road. Um, so I position all these points and kind of map out the spline. Um, you know, plug that into my fence making, um, uh, you know, HDA, which may be expecting a spline and maybe a couple of meshes. And Houdini could go and put everything at the right spacing, at the right density. It could maybe uh, automatically combine some of those meshes and generate some LODs for them. It could even, you know, look at their interconnectivity and spawn some variation for you. Uh, and then it would just give you a mesh with all of that ready to go. Um, uh, and it, it kind of, kind of just explodes from there, right? Like it can export it to the level. You could also kick it out to somewhere in your content browser. So if you wanted to 
you know, batch run through a bunch of assets and optimize them. You could do that if you wanted to build a very, very complex tool that just has nothing but like, you know, numbers as an input system. Like I'm going to generate, you know, a building and all I'm going to tell it is how tall it is, how many sides it has, like how many, how many stories it has. Um, and maybe you've got the assets saved to disk somewhere. Houdini could go and put all of that together for you and, and kick out a, a building. You can even tell it, you know, hey, if you kick out a building and it's a wall, look into my content browser for this specific material that is brick and put it on there automatically. So like um, there's there's a there's a pretty deep level of, of exposed control for what you bring in and what you bring out uh, when it comes to Houdini Engine. That's a great point. And, and it's almost it's almost limitless. I think one of the first like really simple applications we were integrating Houdini Engine um, at a at a at, at another studio um, where I was, at two K actually and and we had our own proprietary engine so we were doing this kind of from scratch we integrated Houdini Engine but we were able to take terrain and it would read that terrain and based on the logic again I, I think a lot of the things you mentioned Alex really are are that logic point right um, you can just apply logic to just about anything so. We would scatter points on that terrain based on a certain rule set. If the hillside is super steep, you're not going to get a lot of trees and things on that. So based on the slope, based on the elevation, proximity to other assets, proximity to roads, proximity to water, um, we could then scatter uh, points based on that rules. And then we could add, you know, randomization. So we're always going to spin it 360 on the Z, you know, on the Y if you're in, you know, so the tree is always rotated. We can vary from instance to instance the scale, um, you know, the a little bit of random lean uh, on each of them. Um, and it really creates a, a really natural looking environment, especially if you do things, you know, you again, you build up that logic. So, well, we've got a lake over here, so I know we're gonna have more water, so we're gonna have more grass and we can drive that material to be wetter around over here or whatever. Um, but again, that scattering of instantiated assets uh, to make it look like a billion dollar scene, even though it's only using three trees, five rocks, two bushes, five flowers, and a terrain mesh is, is really, really super powerful. And to Alex's example, not only can you have that, that you know, draw a spline and have it create a fence, but if the terrain guy changes the terrain, he just goes rebuild and it'll regenerate that fence except appropriately applied to the terrain uh, rather than some poor guy having to go and move fence kit segments uh, to match the terrain again. I've been there. Yeah, yeah I, I, my my first job had a lot of terrain painting and sculpting by hand. That oof, now I wish, I wish, I wish. How <laughs> times have changed. Yeah. It's frustrating. So we were in a big open world game, and and uh, there was like a marsh area, and that marsh area got changed a bit. And those poor foliage painters and terrain painters were just, you know, five days of all nighters, and then a week later changed. They do another five days all nighters. So I think that was part of the impetus to uh, start taking a procedural approach to these large-scale open worlds. I was wondering if you guys had uh, some of your like favorite examples of uh, how it's been used in games recently. Like, for example, like with Spider-Man. Spider-Man did it really well with generating the city, right? Entirely with Houdini. Do you guys know any anything else, to, any other game that's done it quite nicely? I think my favorite, and it's still, I still like the most, like, pointed one that I look at is, is definitely the, the talks from Far Cry 5, where, like, that was, that was a, an implementation of Houdini Engine into their, into their custom tech that handled a, an entire, like, terrain pipeline. Like, to me, when I look at, like, what is, like, the extreme version of this scenario, uh, this is, this is the closest thing to it, where a designer can, mess with the height map to make it good and then their houdini pipeline would go and they would automatically colorize it they would automatically figure out the materials they would go in and place the cliffs they would then do a pass with trees and roads and power lines they would do fences on the roads they would then scatter stuff under the trees like uh it was all it was all deterministic it was all batch to farm so it would run overnight like it was on this like massive beautiful map like that that to me is Anytime I see examples where it is it is set up to an extreme like that, I think it's really impressive. And I think the other is is worth calling out, like um, like the Ascents work, uh, which is I think it's an it's an unreleased title, but they they're doing the kind of the opposite end, right? Which is like, can we solve a very specific problem in a beautiful artistic way? Where they've got a, just a ton of these 
you know, like cable tools to help fill up their cyberpunk city. Um, that's just absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, one example that I can think of um, that I saw stuff about recently is in Control. If anyone's played Control, they I own used... it. I need to play it. Good. <laughs> I'm going to assume it's the destruction, right? Yeah, yeah. Because you can kind of like literally just pull parts of like anything, you know, like pull parts of the floor out, wall, this kind of stuff. And they used to do need to kind of generate these just from the existing kind of environments. And it's, it feels awesome. It's, it's something that I, you know, I haven't kind of seen in another game where it generally feels like you're kind of dynamically pulling stuff out. I'm, I'm sure some bits are sort of, you know, pre-selected, but it, it, it definitely feels like you can kind of grab anything. You're like, yeah, I'm just going to grab the corner of that pillar and I'm just going to throw it at this dude. So uh, the destruction kind of elements um, of Houdini and it allows for that kind of real-time um, destruction integration of existing stuff is, is really cool, really powerful. I think the Naughty Dog guys are do, have done some really cool stuff too. The Uncharted 4, it's more content creation than procedural content, but still it was really, really lovely use of the tool and, and the results really spoke for themselves. Using these kind of procedural techniques um, allows... For, for so much more to be done with the kind of limited game development time that exists. Uh, you were talking earlier about more, more iteration. I think that's a really powerful ability of using kind of procedural techniques that you can just iterate on stuff you're not committed. It's not, ah, yeah, but the team spent two weeks making this one area. We can't change it. It's, yeah, you want, you know, you want to change this thing. That's, that's cool. Everything else will update when we change this. Um, that really adds that kind of element of flexibility that, that perhaps isn't there if you're constrained to just having to manually change everything. Um, yeah. Because it takes forever to change stuff. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it's, it's the way we've been trending for a while now, right? Like, I remember, you know, when I read what a texture was way back in high school, got changed when I got told that, like, you know, we were defining materials and putting those on things. And then you got Substance Designer where... You know, you're no longer defining, you know, as much the individual textures by the, or sorry, substance painter, but like you're now just painting in those materials, right? Like it's become like, it's a, it's a layer of abstraction for artists. Like we have to, we accept that there is a certain level of control that we give up in order to be able to iterate faster and work, work on a larger picture. And I think that this is just another example of that kind of progression where, you know, if you had like the most crazy, like it's like using Far Cry 5 as an example, where you had the ability to change the look of 40 kilometers with, with like a small chunk of logic. Um, that just like is a level of, of detail and artistry that is just not a thing or like wouldn't be a thing without like a team of 30 people working for a year, right? Um, and and yeah, it's, it's incredible. Shall we uh, do some Patreon questions? Yeah, I was going to ask. Yeah, I was going to see. Well, I think we sort of, Vaguely touched on it a little bit, but uh, it's a little bit slightly different. Um, so Rogers asks, um, "Do you see in the future of Houdini being used more, kind of for generating procedural props like trees and terrain in games?" I think more placing them than creating that content from scratch. I'm not sure you'd really. Want, I mean, you could you could use L systems to generate procedural trees. Certainly could do that, but. They're, they'd be competing with Speedtree, who's actually already doing a fantastic job of that. Um, I think more placement, I guess, or systemic populating um, of those props more than creating them. Obviously, creating variants, uh, but um, I don't know. What do you think, Alex? Uh, I think it really defines. Uh, it depends on like how you define a prop, right? Like, if if we're talking like a chair, probably not, right? But if we're talking like a building. Or, or maybe like uh, like piles of trash, stuff like that, that are that would still go into the game maybe as a singular asset, but would in truth be made of multiple things. Um, I think it's only getting better at that stuff. Um, but I, I agree, like generally, like placement, modification, optimization, um, configuration, variation. Those are the things that are exceptionally, uh, you know, good in Houdini. Modeling's actually come along too quite a bit. Um, it's actually improved over the last few years uh, a lot. Yeah, pretty powerful this is true. tools and pretty powerful chamfer tools. And 
I think the raw three D modeling is something that you still don't see a ton of with Houdini and in, in, in sort of main game development. I wonder if that's one of the things that will probably get a uh, a focus on to try and get people to. It would be nice. Yeah, it would to have I like think... the traditional modeling approach in Houdini, but it still maintains the procedural node graph. Would bring a lot of people into the software, I imagine. And it it does it does definitely like touch on that right and i think that's maybe one of the things that put me off of like history-based workflow is like a so i learned in maya which is notoriously like their history is very sketchy right like you're not <laughs> going to model something that's like twenty thousand try spaceship go back and like yeah. try to get away with changing something at the start um and and houdini it's all there and it's very visible and like um if you started your shape by like booleaning a the sphere from a cube like you a thousand percent can go back to that very first operation and change it. Um, it may take some time to catch up, but but it it is absolutely a thing that it can do, and it's it's unintuitive if you've if you're coming from that like I've been burned by needing to delete history on something in Maya every five seconds, um, which that's at least where I started. Mm. To to be honest, um, as a pre predominantly a Max and Blender user nowadays, um, I find that even max for example it's not used quite correctly like people use it just like maya where they'll just uh just rely on history and collapse stacks but you've got much like in houdini you've got this selection of incredible modifiers that you can make a, a very procedural um asset with like for example a lot of our modular kits that we use at work they come from a almost a basic shape sometimes that become a very complex wall right and i think that that sort of that probably facilitates people jumping from a Maxim Blender to Houdini more so than maybe Maya to Houdini, where, you know, in Maya, you don't have a lot of these sort of procedural tools that you can use to um, create something non-destructively, right? Yeah, and I think Modo also, they've got their, they've got their procedural, uh, they've got their non-destructive, like, um, like, booleaning system that I can't remember the name of, but they also have their procedural modeling tools now. Yeah. Um, which are, which are, are not bad at all. All these packages imitating each other. We'll see which one comes out on top eventually. Just combine them together, <laughs> like Autodesk did. They they do. They buy them and then just uh... keep them both. <laughs> Got another question here from Kay. Um, he's asked, "How do you work out what approach you're going to be taking when trying to do something in Houdini? Oftentimes, the same issue can be approached from ten different angles." How do you choose the right angle of approach? Trial and error, guessing. <laughs> Oftentimes I find that I'll try, I'll, I'll, when I enter into it, I'll think one approach is the way to go. But once I start building it out, um, it, you know, I, I, I figure out pretty quickly that maybe another approach is better. So it's really hard to say. Um, yeah, it, it, it really depends on the task or the asset that I'm trying to build. Um, but that the who the person with the question is absolutely right there's you know often 10 ways to skin a cat and uh, oftentimes i find that the way i think first go is going to be the way to do it isn't and i find a better way to do it or a smarter way to do it or a more flexible way to do it once i dig in yeah on my end I, i'd say the same to some extent i i, I like i kind of mentioned before I'm i'm very like speed result oriented so it's if I think I can do something some way, I'll do it till I start to find like, uh, like a breakpoint or you know like, I I I'm pretty modular between software at this point, especially if it's my own personal work. So, like I could I could be starting to like make a rock generator, and I could find that halfway through it, well, this one part of the like the rock would just actually be better if I just like modeled it quickly somewhere else and brought it back in. Um, and then now I have like this part of a tool that's referencing an FBX from like another package. Um, and I, I tend to, I tend to follow that through with like how I'm trying to solve a problem where, uh, I'll do it till I, till I see a faster way to try something else. Um, but I, I definitely wouldn't be, I think that's one of the, one of the things that I think people can get caught up in when it comes to these procedural systems is over indexing on, oh, well, everything's got to be completely controllable, right? Like. There's there's always this fine line of like what you need control of versus what you could make co like controllable, um, and it's healthy to think about it, but it's often 
I mean, it kind of goes into like, you know, engineering game systems and, and game development as well, as well, right? Like, like you could build the most amazing, perfect engineered system, but it probably wouldn't ship on time. You know what I mean? Like there is, there is a, uh, like 90% of the work and 10% of the time mentality that goes into how, how flexible your system is. Um, so really having your goals in mind is an important part of like what path you choose. I find too, is I'm building setups, I, I, I simplify them as I go. I start off and it's kind of complex. And to your point, Alex, is I kind of start distilling it down. I'm like, is that really necessary? Am I really doing mm -hmm. some favor by exposing that? And I find that the, the more refined the system is, it gets simpler and simpler and cleaner and cleaner. And, and you know, for, for people that are looking like, let's say you're on a, an art team and, and, and you're listening to this podcast because you want to check out Houdini and bring that to the rest of your team, at that point, you are stepping into this world of like, I'm not just making something for myself, I'm making something to support the team that I'm on. Right. And complexity of tools, like I, I have still have like very fond memories of like building shaders for friends in Unreal and then giving it to them and them seeing just like 100 parameters and, and, and not being super happy with that. Uh, and that's great for me because I'm comfortable in that space. But if you're building these things, you really, really do want to, you want to figure out what is needed for the results for the people that you're making this tool for. Yeah. Work out what, what it is you want the tool to do. Uh, I think definitely right with like uh, the example of materials in, in Unreal. If you expose every single parameter you could possibly change, you're going to end up with something that's so complicated to work with. Um, it's going to take someone ages just to even you know, find where to just tint the color or something because it's like 600 parameters. So finding out what actually matters uh, can really help stay, keep you on track. Yep. Name your parameters, something sensible. Like comment, comment your nodes <laughs> like you'd comment your code. Uh, someone will thank you for it, or you'll thank yourself for it. Like, like a, a year from then when you're looking back going, why the hell did I make it blue? <laughs> Just make sure the comment mean, makes perfect. sense. Uh, yeah. Nodes just labeled. Sorry, future me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, one more question here. Um, so Hitchens asked, it seems like there's a lot more kind of beginner-friendly nodes coming into uh, Houdini, sort of being made perhaps a bit more um, intuitive. Um, so he's sort of wondering if you think we'll see more kind of uh, general artists, like environment artists or prop artists, picking up Houdini. Um, rather than just sort of purely being more on the kind of tech artist and the VFX artist side. So you, I'm sorry, the question was, are we, are we expecting to see more, more growth in that area? Yeah, pretty much like, do you think more, uh, more kind of environment or like artists who would typically work in, you know, something else, are they going to come and, and start using more Houdini? Um, to kind of introduce procedural workflows rather than having to rely on kind of a tech artist to build tools for them. Yeah, I think um, I think you're absolutely going to see that. I mean, I've I've seen that in the past like three years. I I knew no one that had ever opened Houdini, and now I know maybe like you know ten or fifteen people that have at least like checked it out or used it to solve a specific problem or something like that. It's uh, I think I think it's kind of like. It, let's say popularity is the problem, which is maybe not the right way to phrase it, but it's getting attacked from both ends, right? You're seeing success with Houdini, with Houdini Engine in these different programs. You're also seeing increased accessibility. You're seeing game dev oriented nodes through like the side effects labs and stuff like that. Um, you're seeing more education um, like material out there for artists as opposed to, you know, incredibly technically oriented people. Um, so I think both of those are helping, but absolutely, I think it's I think it's only going to keep going. Yeah, I totally agree. I, uh, when uh, when I was working at a studio, you know, it was sort of the, the evangelist for Houdini, and by the time I left, there was like seven really strong users. Um, we had brought in, you know, real heavy hitter from uh, ILM who, you know, who, uh, you know, a lot of experience. Um, you know, so it's I, I do agree that it is starting to become more broadly used. And we even had designers that were like prototyping gameplay and stuff using logic within Houdini, which was kind of interesting. Um, and also side effects has done a pretty good job of trying to make it more accessible. I mean, obviously the training that, that comes from the community is super helpful and makes getting into it a lot easier. Um, 
But I think, you know, once you appreciate the procedural approach, again, if you just want to sculpt a table and make that table just so, and it's, you know, it may not, there might not be a lot of benefit there. But I think once, you know, environment artists uh, start to appreciate the flexibility that gives them, the power it gives them, the ability to iterate much closer to the end of the project than you'd be able to if you were crafting everything, uh, I do think interest in it will increase. But it already is. I mean, it seems like Houdini went from this kind of, you know, oddball thing way back when, and now it's pretty ubiquitous. I mean, Houdini is pretty standard on any effects, you know, job rec or anything like that at this point. Yeah. Even some environment art stuff may require some Houdini experience sometimes, or not require, but it's one of those pluses, you know? Absolutely. Like processing assets, you know, um, all sorts of stuff. So before we sign off, we'll check in with the Luan desk and see if there is a bonus question of the week. The bonus question of the week. Uh, okay. I want to ask what... Uh, hmm. Okay, let's go with it with a classic because I really like this one. I want to know you guys' favorite foods, and if you were to make one of them in Houdini, which one would you make? <laughs> what the fuck, dude? Just do it. That's, that's a hard that's one, my, man. That's my bonus question of the week. Is that for everyone or just the guests? Just the guests, but you can chime in after if you like. <laughs> you want to take that one, Alex? <laughs> I mean, I've, I've I've long stood by like. Uh, uh, pizza for the body, caffeine for the mind, sushi for the soul. Um, <laughs> but you know, I think I think a bunch of procedural sushi would be pretty fun. Like, oh yeah, uh, that's pizza. Awesome. Pizza is you know cylinder with stuff on it, but you know you got like sushi's made of weird stuff, right? Like rice. Would you and... make the also would you make the sushi finished, or would you animate it as well, like rolling the sushi? I mean that'd be pretty cool. I know that's that's probably past where I'd be comfortable with, but I would I would like to try. I'd be more I'd be more curious about like can you fill something up with rice? <laughs> <laughs> I I like to be filled up with sushi and rice, but it's uh you know, I think I think it's a passion a cool project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. A hunger project. <laughs> How about I, you? I like uh I've got a hankering for oysters on the half shell sometimes on a sunny day in the summer. <laughs> um, I think that would be a really interesting thing to try to tackle because there's a lot of different materials, a lot of different surface types, a lot of different, uh, uh, you know, lighting reaction, uh, interesting shapes. Uh, again, you get the randomization, you got the ice. Uh, that would be an interesting thing to try and tackle. Well, there you go. go. You guys got yourself some projects right there. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Cam, how about you? You wanted to chime in there. I didn't want to, but you do. I mean, you know my favorite. You know, you know my favorite dish, dude. It's a nice medium rare steak. So I have. I don't even know where I would start in Houdini on how to make that. So you could so change like the how rare it is and stuff like that. It would be a nice addition, a good slider, like well, to start like rare all the way up to well done. First, you start with and the then cow. <laughs> You truly are a procedural purist, aren't you, Alex? You <laughs> <laughs> go as far as possible. I mean, if you if you start with the cow, then you've got a lot of options for different meals. So. And there we go. That's me done. Tim, take us away. <laughs> All right. So um, just before we uh, thank you, I just want to say another big thank you to Side Effect for sponsoring this episode. If if any of the uh, stuff that we've covered has piqued your interest and you think you want to check out Houdini and see what it's about. Um, we're going to leave links in the description to the website, um, and they've got Houdini Apprentice, which is a kind of free version that you can try out um, if you're you know, a hobbyist or a student, or you just want to look in and have a go at testing some stuff for non-commercial products, grab Apprentice and try it out. Um, thank you um, to our guests, Alex and you, for joining us to discuss Houdini. Um, thank you guys for having us. Yeah, thanks a ton. It's great to have you guys. Thank you to Cameron for being here and helping with us. Very late at Any night. <laughs> here we are. But we power through. We power through. Here we are. I'm wide awake. I'm wide asleep. Norm 2 a.m. normal hours. <laughs> and uh, if you want to check out any of the kind of EXP stuff we've got going on, head of to our website and read some of the articles. Uh, we've probably got some stuff about Houdini up there. I think so. 
or come along to Discord and join in some of the discussions. I think we've even got we've even got some channels on Discord where people probably talk about the VFX got channel some, probably quite a bit. Got some VFX and tech art stuff, so yeah, come and join in. Um, I'm sure some people will be talking about it. But uh, thank you everyone for listening in. Thank you uh, for joining us, and until next time, take care. See ya.